Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. As we think about where we're at during the year, we know that we move from one season to another very quickly, don't we? Yesterday was Christmas. And while we're, we're maybe not quite ready to move on, it won't be long before we do. Trees will be down, the lights will be put away, all that will be moved on from. Garbage truck will come, take the wrapping paper away. We'll move on. Kids will have stopped playing with the boxes and maybe start playing with the actual toys by that point, right? You'll walk into a store and the music on the speakers will be completely different. And all the stuff from the Christmas season will be on clearance. And if you're a thrifty shopper, you might be heading out to look for that stuff very soon to try and get the deals on the stuff you didn't want to pay for this year. Time moves quickly and the world around us does the same thing. And so we return to the book of Luke this morning. And we find the story in Luke as well moving very quickly as we move on from the story that was in Luke 2, the announcement of Jesus, his early life, and now. We're not only meeting the adult Jesus, but we're also meeting the adult son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, John the Baptist. And this is what we have truly been waiting to see. It's exciting, and it's sentimental to see the birth of the Messiah. But we know what human nature is. When it comes to a story, what do we want? We want action, and business is picking up in the book of Luke. We want to see what Jesus is going to do. And from our passage today, we we get the idea that the Messiah is not coming to make people feel comfortable. If the one who is preparing the way for the Messiah is upsetting the apple cart, as we read here, just imagine what the one who will come after him will do. Now, as we come to our passage today, we see not only John the Baptist preparing the way, but also the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus with his baptism. So as we come, we're coming to a rather big bit of of text that doesn't cover altogether that much ground. So we're going to be covering covering a lot of verses, but not much is moving through the story, but a lot's actually kind kind of happening. A lot of preparation is taking place, but we're going to break it down into three points, and we're going to see how we can navigate this passage and apply it. So the first thing that we're going to see is that John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Now, this is an important part of the story, because it's about preparing for the coming of the ministry of Jesus. John is calling people to repent. He's calling people to return to God. And we're going to see that this is fulfilling a role that was prophesied in the Old Testament, this calling of people to repentance. Then in our second point, we're going to see that this proclamation by John the Baptist causes people to wonder if he is the Messiah. He's arrived calling people to repentance and he's offering baptism. Is he the Christ? Is this the one they've been waiting for? Or is there another one that is yet to come? 
And John makes it very clear that he is not the promised one, but the one who prepares the way. And then finally, we're going to see that event that inaugurates the public ministry of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus. And we see in that part of the story a confirmation, an important confirmation of who Jesus is. He's the beloved son. And once again, as we've seen in other parts of Luke, we're going to see that the favor of God is upon him. And so we move on to verses 1 through 3 here in chapter 3 of Luke, and we find ourselves in another familiar story. And it's a lot of text, like I said, that we're going to be navigating this morning. And so we jump right into the first three verses and see a familiar way of starting a story. We've seen this in Luke. Remember back to the other parts of Luke that we have seen so far. Luke isn't afraid to draw the story of Jesus into the real world. This is not some mystical, religious story where it doesn't matter if it really happened to Luke. This is a real story, and it's taking place in a real world because we have a real sin problem that needs to be taken care of. The curse is a reality. The world was plunged into sin by our first parents, and so we need a real salvation because that is what we so desperately are in need of because our death is real. Our sin is real. And so God promised not a floaty spiritual salvation back in the garden. No. He made a promise of a real salvation. The promised Messiah was not going to just appear out of thin air, right? Remember back to Genesis 3. We've talked about it so many times. God promised that the Savior who would come would be from the seed of the woman. And that was because we need a Savior who arrives in our very real, very broken world. And so this makes the story long, right? The first child born to Eve is not the promised one. We followed that progression through the book of Genesis here. And we've seen all these people, and there's been times where I've said, is Noah the one? And then we find out that he isn't. This has been a season of anticipation for the people. They've been waiting for this promised one. And when children are born, maybe they're wondering, is this the generation that will see the Messiah come? And it hasn't happened, and it hasn't happened. But we know from the first part of Luke that it has happened. Jesus has arrived in the real world. And so Luke tells us about what was going on when John the Baptist arrives. What was going on in the real world? This is the world Jesus is coming into. It's the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And some guy we've heard of before, in fact, we say his name in the Apostles' Creed, right? Pontius Pilate is the governor of the region of Judea. Here we have it. The real world, the people all around them that are causing history to take place. Herod is ruling over Galilee. His brother Philip is ruling over other assorted regions. What is Luke doing? He's framing the ministry of Jesus with the world that is around him. Now, before we move on to the mention of the arrival of John, there's one piece of information that is interesting here. Now, so Luke tells us here that this occurs when Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Well, this is strange because there's only supposed to be one high priest at a time. So why are there two names here? Well, Annas 
had been removed from being high priest by the Roman government, and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was named high priest. Now, you can imagine how that went over with the people. I'm sure the Jews likely didn't appreciate the Romans sticking their noses in their business and telling them who the high priest should be. And so, some of the Jews were like, Caiaphas can say he's a high priest, but Annas is. And other people listened to the Romans. And so, Luke has to tell us who they both were, because in the minds of the people, there were two, even though there was only supposed to be one. So now we see all this historical info set forth, and we read that the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth has the word of the Lord come to him in the wilderness. Now, we're seeing why John was considered worthy of getting so much exposure in the first part of Luke. We heard this story. Why are, why are we reading about Zechariah and Elizabeth and this child? Well, now we're seeing why. We're seeing why John is, is such an important part. The story of his arrival was a significant part of the first part of Luke. Well, we see that John is going to be calling the people to repentance. Now, this is a common prophetic idea. Remember all the times in the Old Testament where the people are called to return to God? It was prophets doing that, right? And now John the Baptist is doing the same thing. Same thing. The idea here is that John the Baptist is a prophet. He is like the prophets of old. He's in the wilderness, and the word of the Lord has come to him just like the prophets of old. And what is he doing? He's calling people to return to God. Think of that phrase that we use so often, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. That is all over the Old Testament. That's the idea of what's happening here. And so as we advance to verse 4, we see that there's this voice John the Baptist crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. And look at what is anticipated here. This one crying in the wilderness will make the path straight for the coming of the Messiah. Valleys are going to be filled. Mountains are made low. The crooked are being straightened. And the rough places will become level. And so you get the idea of what is being said here. Things are going to be changed at a major level. And... The Messiah who is coming, he is going to level the field. If, those who are, if there are those who are too low, they're going to be brought up. The valleys are going to be filled. If there are those who are too high, the mountains will be brought low. And we see something interesting in the way that, that Luke shares this passage from Isaiah. Now, all four Gospels will apply Isaiah 40 here. And they'll, be, they'll use it to talk about John. But there's something unique in what Luke adds. The rest stop before getting to the final line that we see quoted here. And that line, all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Well, the reason that Luke has gone a little further in Isaiah than the rest of the Gospels is because of his audience. Remember back to the beginning of Luke. Who's the audience? Theophilus, a Greek, a Gentile. And so Luke is letting Theophilus and us know that the Messiah is going to come to all people. All flesh will see the salvation of God. It's not just the Hebrew people. It's not just the Jews. All flesh will see the salvation of God. It goes all the way back to the one preparing the way. This isn't something that is going to come later. This isn't plan B. 
Luke wants us to know that the idea of the gospel going to all flesh goes back even to the one preparing the way of the Messiah. It isn't plan B because the Jews rejected Jesus that the gospel goes to the Gentiles. It's the plan all along. The Messiah will bring salvation to all people, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of what their family tree looks like. And so this is the really good news as we see the ministry of Jesus about to begin. We're reminded that we're going to see Jesus do and and teach all kinds of great things. And it's not just for people born from a certain genetic line. It's for all the children of Adam. And so that means that it's for us. And while this is good news that the Messiah is coming, the message that John brings is not just sunshine and happiness. In fact, from what we read, John is saying... very hard things. And so it's no wonder he is out in the wilderness. It might be the only place they let him talk, you know. I I appreciate your views, Uncle Bill, but we don't want you to say those um, at at the Christmas dinner table. Can you go out into the entryway and say those, right? That's kind of the idea here. John is out in the wilderness. He's out in the wilderness. It might be the only place they let him talk. So as we look at verses 7 through 9, we see this call to repentance. It doesn't matter whether you are, you're talking in the first century or whether you're talking in our present day. If you tell your audience that they're a bunch of snakes, you're going to get their attention. And that's not the only attention-grabbing line that John has. He asks them, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? So what in the world is John so worked up about? Well, it's likely that many of those in his audience were not what you and I would call sincere. They probably came out to see the show that everyone was talking about. There's this wild man out in the wilderness. You should see the way he's dressed. You should see what he's eating. You know, he's eating locusts, man. Let's go look. Well, this wild man was also sounding like a prophet of old. There's there's no Netflix. There's no Hulu. There's no... Facebook to scroll through on your phone. Let's go see the wild prophet in the wilderness. I'm guessing that John the Baptist was the most interesting thing around. And so John is telling his audience, don't just come and listen to me. Examine your hearts. And this phrase, brood of vipers, implies that he is saying that you're going to be the offspring of poisonous snakes. And so they are becoming like those who have lived in sin, those who oppressed the prophets who came before John the Baptist. He's saying, if you don't do something about what I'm saying, you're the offspring of these people who killed the prophets. That's the basic idea of what he's driving at. So what is John ultimately calling them to do? He says that they're to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, don't just say you're going to repent Don't just have John baptize you and then go home and live your life the same way you always have. He's calling them to live their lives in a new way, to reflect the washing that they now have in the baptism that he has given them. And isn't that really the hard part? It's easy to feel sorrow for our sin. It's easy to say that we're going to live differently. It's an entirely different thing to actually do it. And we see that John anticipates what he thinks their answer will be. 
He says, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, don't think that because you're a Hebrew by birth that you and God are okay. Don't think that just because your Ancestry.com profile came back with DNA that's connected to Abraham that you don't need to actually repent, that you need, don't need to bear good fruit. Don't think that your family is going to get you off the hook here. He tells them that God could raise up children of Abraham from the rocks around them. That's significant. That goes back to what we saw, all flesh. God can raise up children from anyone. If he can, if he can raise up rocks, he can make Gentiles like us children of God, right? That's what's happening here. And John tells them, even now the axe is laid to the root. In other words, the whole way of doing things and the understanding of who the children of God are is coming down. Because every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Those are harsh words. But isn't that what prophets do? They say what people don't want to hear. And we see that these calls to repent are being heard by the people and are causing them to wonder, what do we do then? If he's calling us to repent, if being a child of Abraham isn't enough, what do we actually do? And we, and we see this in verses 10 through 14. John calls them to give to others. He tells them to do their jobs honestly. There isn't any real super-duper insights here, are there? There's nothing amazing in this call to repentance. He just tells them to be honest in their professions. This isn't any different than it is for us, is it? When we're called to repentance, when we're convicted of our sin, where does it start? It starts with the hard stuff. It starts with the stuff in our ordinary lives, the stuff we've developed bad habits around, right? That's where it starts. You and I, we, what do we want? We want some path to higher enlightenment or some sort of super way to do things. But, but what we're called to do by God when, we, when we're convicted of our sin, when we're called to repentance, we're called to take a path that's holy, it's just, it's just to live our lives in holiness, in the ordinary things of life, the way we interact with each other, the way we do business, the way we care for others. That's where repentance happens. And even though these instructions were simple, causes the people to wonder, who is this guy? Is he really just a prophet? Or is he something more? And so that question comes up in verses 15 through 20 as we move on to our second point. You've, you've heard me mention before that this time in history, the early first century, it would have been a time of messianic expectation like no other. The people back then, they had done their math on the 70 weeks of Daniel. He prophesied that, that there would be 69 weeks of years and then the Messiah would come. They did the math. When was Daniel around? Here it is. It's this general time. They wouldn't have been able to nail it down, but they would have expected the Messiah to be coming very soon. They knew the Messiah was on the way. And so they're asking the very obvious question, is John the Christ? Is he the prophesied, expected Messiah? And they're asking a good question. And they have no idea how close they are to getting it right. It's like that question when you were in school when you were younger 
you got it wrong, but you went to the teacher and you said, I'm close here. Can I have partial credit? That's kind of that's what we have here. They are so close. They deserve at least a few points for being able, able to identify that the Messiah is close at hand. John isn't the Messiah, but he is the one preparing the way, and he lets them know that the Messiah is on the way, and that he is greater and mightier than all the stuff they're seeing him do, all the calls to repentance that he has, all the preaching that he's doing. As great as that is, as awesome as they see that to be, the one who is coming is greater. In fact, he tells his audience that he's not even worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. Now, this is a weird phrase for us. Uh, we either slip our shoes off or untie them ourselves, right? We don't say, come untie my, my shoe, right? So what's going on here? We would, we would never describe someone, they're not even worthy of untying my, my sandals or my shoes. But this comes from the rabbinic tradition of that day. Students were supposed to do the tasks for their teacher, the rabbi they were learning under. And you can imagine how that went. The rabbis were probably asking them to do everything. But they were not allowed to untie the sandal of the rabbi because the lowest people, the lowest servants in the house had to do that. There was somebody who was lower than the students. They were lower on the ranking. They were at the bottom. They were lower than even the students that the rabbi was asking to do everything. Untying the sandals was a job that was even too menial for the students of a rabbi. The lowest of the low household servants did that task. And John is saying that he's not even that guy in comparison to Jesus. So John is calling people to repentance, and he is baptizing with water. But the one who is coming will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So what is John saying? Remember the context that we are in here. John has been doing this outward washing with water, this baptism. The idea is that they are being made clean, and he's calling people to repentance, and he's washing people with water. And what's his concern? That people aren't going to be changed, that they're not going to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's his concern. Well, now he says that the baptism that Jesus is bringing will bring internal changes Because the Holy Spirit is going to come. And there's going to be a baptism of fire. And the idea there is that that is judgment. There's going to be judgment coming with the Messiah. And notice the contrast. Outward cleaning, outward washing, water. Inward, Holy Spirit, judgment with fire. You see what's happening. John is the lower one. He's doing these things. But the greater one is coming. And he's going to bring the Holy Spirit. He's going to bring fire John could wash the outside, but only the work of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit can wash the inside of people. Only he can clean that up. And so John continues with with the extreme language once again. He says that the Messiah is going to come and judge sin. He's going to gather the wheat into the barn, but those that are not bearing fruit, again, we see that theme coming through, They're going to be sent out. They're going to be destroyed. John is letting his audience know to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah because this is going to be the most important message that they will ever hear because it's the ultimate message of salvation. It's the ultimate message of judgment, and they need to be ready. And we see that these calls to repentance 
get the attention not only of the people in the wilderness, but he's also upsetting people in higher places of authority. It's making them so uncomfortable. We read here that, that John the Baptist is locked up, and we know eventually from the other Gospels that this causes the end of John the Baptist's life. This call to repentance, this, this telling people to turn from their sin, ultimately gets him killed. But we know that John is the one who prepares the way for the Lord. We know the story in Luke isn't about John the Baptist. It's about Jesus. And, and so the story is shifting to him as our passage for today concludes. We, we felt it shifting in the text as Jesus points to him, but now the story is moving towards Jesus. And now we see that he is the one who is promised as we look at the final two verses in 21 and 22. The story shifts rapidly to Jesus, and we get a condensed version of the baptism of Jesus here. Just two verses about it, real quick. Generally, you'll hear me say that the Gospel of Mark tells the stories the fastest, right? Mark is always talking about immediately, he's getting the stories done. But for some reason, Luke only has two verses. Even Mark has three verses about the baptism of Jesus. But we get the point here, it's coming across. Earlier we saw the contrast between the baptism of water and the coming baptism of fire. Well, now we're seeing a contrast between the baptism of the regular folks who are coming out to be baptized and the baptism of Jesus. Everyone else had been baptized, nothing happens. Everything was normal. But when Jesus is baptized, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and a voice is heard from heaven. And as we notice, whenever we find ourselves in a passage about the baptism of Jesus, we see all three persons of the Trinity represented. Jesus is in the water, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and God the Father is speaking from heaven. And the idea expressed in what we're seeing here is that the sign of blessing has come upon the ministry of Jesus. He is the one that was promised. He's the one who will save God's people. He is the beloved Son with whom God is well pleased. And it's important that we think back to how the Gospel of Luke has confirmed this for us all the way. We've, we've seen this before. The angels gave us the identity of the child in Mary's womb. He, he's the Messiah. The angels announced it to the shepherds, right? We heard the proclamation of Simeon and Anna when he, Jesus was presented at the table. And then we, we see how blessed the young Jesus is when, when he is teaching in the temple at the age of 12. The idea through Luke so far, the one that's progressing, is that He's the one. He's the one. God's favor is on him. There's no question about the identity of Jesus. You and I know he is. We know he is. And as the book of Luke progresses and we hear his teaching and we see his life, this is telling us to approach what we learn about Jesus and what we hear him teaching. We need to understand that this is from God. He is the beloved son and because of this, we should not only listen to what he has to say, but we should believe in him that we might have life in his name. And so there's this shift that's happening in Luke that we will see continuing next week as Luke gives us the family tree of Jesus. But what can we take home from this passage today as it holds great truths about the identity and mission of our Savior? Well, I want us to take away one specific application this morning as you and I live in light of Jesus being this beloved son. There are so many voices out there in the world for us to listen to. So many. The world is pulling us 
in every absolute direction that you can think of. There is a fire hose of information that we can drink from every day in our, model, in, in our modern world. There is so much available to us, every type of content. It's easy for us to be distracted. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to follow Him. We're called to live a life of holiness in response to what He's done for us. And here we are, we're finishing up the Christmas season. And this season points us to Jesus over and over. And it's a good reminder for us of of what has been done to rescue us from our sin and from our unbelief. Because the story of Jesus shows us that there is one who loves us more than anyone else loves us. From the announcement of his coming to his birth and now in his baptism, there's a point being driven home to us by Luke. He is the one. And this is our hope. And while there are so many voices in the world, the voice of God confirming that he is the beloved son right here in Luke, that's the voice that we need to hear. These words here in Luke let us know that Jesus is the one that we're to follow. Listen to him. He's the beloved son. What he teaches us is to have authority in our lives as his followers. As it says in the opening of the book of Hebrews, God has spoken at many times and in various ways, but now God has spoken in his son. And so as the year comes to a close, may we be driven to God's word and to the words of our Lord as we desire to live in obedience to him that the beloved Son, our great Savior, might receive all honor and glory and praise for who He is and what He's done. In the midst of all the voices in the world, pulling us in so many different directions, may we remember that He is the beloved Son and what His Word commands us to do is what we are to do in our lives. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.